Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Barbara Mancini tells the heartbreaking tale of government intervention in the death of her father. David Bernstein discusses the Obama administration's assault on the Constitution. Benjamin Powell evaluates the impacts of immigration. And Charlie Savage of the New York Times discusses President Obama's assertions of executive power. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In 2005, the Supreme Court issued one of its most reviled decisions in the modern era, ruling that eminent domain can be used for takings for the sole purpose of improving uh, benefits to the community. That's tax uh, revenue and other things. We're talking to the authors of Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century America, Timothy Sandifer and Christina Sandifer. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank so, you. Uh, to begin here, we the first edition of this book came out in 2006, a year after the Kelo decisions, and we've had now a decade of uh, follow-on from that particular decision. Of course, we'll talk about other property rights issues as well, but where are we now with eminent domain and takings for public purposes or public benefits rather than public use? Yeah, unfortunately, we're we're in pretty bad shape still. Um, after Kelo was decided, there was a wave of reforms in state legislatures across the country. Well over 40 states passed bills purporting to restrict the use of eminent domain. But in fact, virtually none of them really had any effect, uh, effective protection for property rights embedded in them. A lot of them were tinkering with uh, procedural rules or just meaningless window dressing. The only states that really strongly protected property rights in the wake of Kelo were Florida and Arizona. One of the remaining issues after the Kelo decision that a lot of states didn't address is the issue of blight. So while um, a lot of states prohibit government from taking private property for a purely purely private use, uh, they still say that government can step in and condemn your property if it considers it to be blighted. Now, what does blighted mean? Well, that means whatever the government says it means. Sometimes, you know, when we think about blight, we think about uh, a home that is dilapidated or even an eyesore, a health or safety hazard. But The kind of house that kids would say is haunted. Ex exactly. But unfortunately, a lot of these states allow government to deem a house blighted if it's anywhere near property that is a health or safety hazard. And so beautiful homes are often considered blighted and condemned and taken, even though supposedly we have property rights protections. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that issue of blight because what makes a neighborhood blighted is often at left at the discretion of local public authorities. Very true. And and many of the states that have criteria written into their law, because many of them don't have any criteria written in the law at all, and so it's just what the officials say it is. But those states that do have those criteria in their statutes, they're written so vaguely that they really provide no protection. In fact, the Kelo decision itself in a footnote said, pointed to California as a good example of a state that had strong objective determinations of what is blight and what isn't. Well, when you look at the California law, it require, it lists two columns of factors, and declare, to declare a neighborhood blighted, you only need one factor from each column. And the columns, these factors are written in such vague terms, things like lack of parking, um, lack of adequate light. The, my favorite is uh, factors that prohibit the economically efficient use of buildings. Well, what does that mean? The very fact that a building is there in some sense is a factor that prevents the economically valuable use of property. And so as a result, you have things like in, in California, neighborhoods are being declared blighted on the basis of what they call windshield surveys, where some um, a consultant hired by the city drives through a neighborhood and writes up a report that says some of these buildings look like they were built at a time when lead paint was common on the market and therefore this neighborhood must be blighted. I mean, that's literally the case in a, in a case that we talked about in the book. The Kelo decision was not the last word on property rights. It was the last time the Supreme Court squarely dealt with the issue of eminent domain. But uh, the Sackett case deals with regulatory takings and uh, there are some fascinating facts that surround that case, but where did that case leave us with respect to regulatory takings, takings of value, and but not necessarily property? Well, in the years since Kilo, there have been a number of court decisions on this 
on the, on the question of regulations that restrict the ability of a property owner to use their property. And Sackett is probably the most notorious. This was the case where a family in Idaho wanted to build their home and the city, or the, the EPA rather, came along and said, guess what? Your perfectly dry land is a wetland. And as a result, you're required to remove the foundation you had installed uh, and re- restore the, sa- the land to its original site and plant the following plants in the following places. I mean, it's a very detailed order from the EPA. And if they fail to comply, they'd be fined something like $75,000 a day. So this is an example, just one of the examples that we give in the book, of how environmental law can often deprive people of their property without even so much as a hearing. The question in the second case that went up to the Supreme Court was whether the property owners even get a chance to argue that their property isn't a wetland, which fortunately the Supreme Court said, yes, they have the right to a hearing. But that's only a day in court. I mean, that's not a victory for the property owners. And in fact, a very similar question is going up to the Supreme Court again this term to, deter- to decide whether something very similar, a jurisdictional determination, also entitles you to a hearing. But again, these are incremental improvements well, and, and the issue with regulatory takings is often they're more insidious than flat-out eminent domain where the government takes title to your home or your property because at least in an eminent domain case, even if the government takes your property unfairly by considering it blighted, at least you get compensation for that. But in federal courts, even though there have been some successes, generally, if the government takes away your property rights but leaves you with title to the property, you don't get paid for losing those property rights and you don't get paid for losing the property value. So what of in the Sackett case, what, where are we now after that? Uh, my understanding is the, the Sackett case has returned to the trial court and the, they're arguing now, they're in preparation for arguing whether the property is a wetland. Now, the problem there is that what is a wetland is, again, so vague that it, it basically means whatever bureaucrats say it means. So it's very hard for a property owner to prove that their property doesn't qualify as a wetland. And of course, once your property is a wetland, you need a federal permit to develop your land. And to get a federal permit costs tremendous amounts of money and takes, oh, it can be 10 years. I mean, it's a huge burden on property owners. Well, and that's another problem right there. You said that it's hard for the property owner to prove that his property is not a wetland. And that really is a problem with regulatory takings and with property law in general is that the burden of proof is placed not on the government to show that it should have the power to take your property, but on the property owner to go into court and prove that 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 person has a property right and that the government shouldn't be able to take the property. And the EPA's mandate, let's be clear, uh, when they talk about uh, regulations, uh, the loss of use of property to the property owner would be a cost, which is something they don't get to consider when they issue regulations. And and it, the Supreme Court made clear in a case called Tennessee Valley Authority versus Hill that the Endangered Species Act requires the protection of the species basically at all costs. And there has been some whittling away at that rule, but it's still that precedent still stands. And as a result of that and other things, I think bureaucrats see themselves as primarily concerned with protecting, you know, the snail darter or the delta smelt and not with respecting the rights, uh, the constitutionally protected rights of private property. I mean, to be clear, private property is, is mentioned in the U.S. Constitution more than any other right. Christina, uh, recently at the uh, Cato Institute Forum, uh, where this book was discussed, and if you want to go more in depth on the discussion of the book Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America, I would refer you to Cato.org to uh, watch or listen to that event. You mentioned the case in Jerome, Arizona, a place that coincidentally I've visited. It's a beautiful little town. As you said, it was the mo- it's one of the most vertical uh, towns in America, an old mining town that is sort of revitalized itself as a funky little arts community. And um, this, this case is about a regulatory taking that the city of Jerome imposed on a property owner. Yeah, that's right. So, so as you mentioned, Jerome is a mining town. Jerome lost uh, over half of its inhabitants after the mine shut down in the 1950s. And the way that the town sustains itself is by catering to tourists. And so people often open up their doors to visitors who want to rent out rooms and stay for a couple nights. And a man named Glenn Odegaard from the Phoenix area just fell in love with Jerome for all the reasons that you've mentioned, loved its character, wanted very much to purchase a home in the Jerome area so that he could go up on weekends and and enjoy the town. So he found a property that had been dilapidated, left vacant for over 60 years, was actually uh, under 10 feet of rocks and debris that had uh, come when there was a landslide down the side of the mountain. 
And this was the property that Glenn could afford. And he said, you know, he saw an opportunity. He said, if I purchase this property and I put my money into it and restore it to its historical condition, then I can rent it out and recuperate my costs. And then I can still come up on the weekends and enjoy it. So that's exactly what Glenn did. He turned it into uh, a historic treasure when it had quite literally been a health hazard before that. And the reward that Glenn got for contributing to the restoration of the town is that the town considered him an outlaw because after Glenn had purchased the property, gotten all the necessary permits, and done the construction for that property, the town decided it was going to outlaw short-term rentals, actually what the town calls vacation rentals. They didn't even define what that meant. And uh, that you could be fined hundreds of dollars a day and spend 90 days in jail for each night that you rented out your property. And again, this is the type of regulatory taking that government will argue in court doesn't entitle you to any kind of compensation because, of course, Glenn can still live in the house himself if he'd like to. But as we know, that isn't why Glenn purchased the house. Related to that, another uh, regulatory takings case is the the Horn case, known uh, as the Raisins case. And this guy deserves a medal for having oh, yeah. done what he did for so long uh, without... Uh, pay, uh, yeah, it took him years, years to, breathe, to bring this case. So, so what's the final result of that? Yeah, so the Horn, the Horn case is a hilarious case, like you said, because the the this is a case where the USDA confiscates about half of the nation's raisin crop every year for the express purpose of making food more expensive for you to buy for your children. That literally is the reason for the program. And this was, well, actually one of the arguments was whether this was a regulatory takings case or an outright physical confiscation case, because they are actually confiscating the raisins, right? Um, but the, the central issue in the case really was, it came to light when both the Ninth Circuit and the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, both of those said, no, no, this isn't a taking of your raisins. This is just a toll that you're paying for the privilege of selling your raisins in interstate commerce, which is just patently absurd. I mean, if you own your raisins, you have the right to sell your raisins. And for the government to call it a privilege that it can charge you a toll for is basically to reverse the entire concept of individual freedom. It's to imagine that people exist at the mercy of the government and the government gives them their rights on its own terms. And this actually came out in the oral argument in the case when Justice Scalia really hammered the government's attorney saying, you're saying that this is just a privilege. Now, we have this phrase, the fruits of our labor, for a reason. The whole the idea is that uh, the most basic concept of private property is that a farmer who grows grapes on his property and makes raisins out of them has the right to sell those raisins or eat them or do whatever he wants to. Fortunately for him, the, the court ruled in his favor and said that you can't characterize this as a toll. It is a taking of his property and that he was entitled to just compensation. And how does that differ from taxation? I mean, ju just as, as a conceptual matter, because it seems like, well, you're taking the raisins. Well, he could have sold them. They have some sort of value. You. Conceptually and speaking historically, taxation and eminent domain have been viewed as two different aspects of the basic concept of sovereignty that every government possesses. And eminent domain originally, if you go back centuries, was pictured as one aspect of the power of the military draft. And in fact, you still see this reflected in some state constitutions. Tennessee's constitution, for instance, refers to the – that it says nobody can be deprived of their property or forced to perform personal services without just compensation. And so the power of the government to take property or to draft you into the military were seen as aspects of sovereignty. Taxation is another aspect of sovereignty. But in exchange for taxation, supposedly, you get protection and the services that are provided by the state. Whereas eminent domain focuses the taking on a particular person and provides some public benefit other than protection, such as uh, a wildlife refuge. You know, a property owner is told, no, you can't build on your property because we want to keep it for the, the speckled gnat catcher or whatever. That's a public benefit. And the one person is being forced to pay for it, as opposed to taxation, which is levied on everybody in the society for the benefit in order to provide for protection for individual rights. This particular taking was highly particularized, executed by a board that the Raisin Administrative it's, Committee yeah, in very, California. And it's hard to get to the bottom of even who those people are. Oh, it's it's just Byzantine. It's it's really one of those holdovers from the New Deal that even Justice Kagan in the oral argument in that case called the most outdated law ever. Although I wish that were the case, actually. It is but the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> All right. So you also talk about uh, other types of takings that occur uh, regularly. In fact, have received a great deal of attention, uh, thanks uh, in, in part by a lot of work done 
uh, various organizations, uh, most especially the Institute for Justice, talking about, of course, uh, asset forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture, where uh, and it's unbelievable. If you describe this to the average person, they say that that doesn't happen. I don't believe that that even occurs. I, I don't want to bore people with the details of the civil asset forfeiture, horrific though they are. But recently, the Justice Department has said, look, we're not going to be distributing funds to states that uh, engage in uh, civil asset forfeiture. It seems that they did it for all the wrong reasons. But could you talk about that a little bit? Well, and that that was a, a positive step, but it was really only one step because the egregious violations of property rights of civil asset forfeiture really occur on the state level. And civil asset forfeiture is the idea that if government thinks that maybe your property has been used in the commission of a crime, they can take your property from you and then you have to go to court and prove that that property was not used in the commission of a crime. They don't even, the government doesn't even have to charge you with a crime to be able to take that property from you. And of course, you're going into court to get that property back in civil court. And the burdens of proof are different and the prote constitutional protections are different. So if you want your property back and you go into court and you have to try to explain how that property was actually used, you could be implicating yourself down the road for a criminal trial uh, and you've waived now your constitutional protections against self-incrimination. So it, it, it really is an insidious violation of government power. And in at least one case in your backyard in Arizona, I believe a woman was told that uh, if she sought to get her property back in court, the, prose the prosecutors would seek attorney's fees. Yeah, well, and, and what happened in Arizona is, um, you know, allegedly this woman's uh, son borrowed her car and used it in the commission of a crime. And and this often happens that it's, it's your property, but somebody else is allegedly using it to commit a crime. And then she was told that if you want to go to court and try to get that back, um, you're going to have to pay the court costs. You're going to have to pay the attorney's fees. And that's incredibly expensive. Um, so, so really, oftentimes what lawyers, what criminal defense attorneys will tell people in these situations is, you, you know, you just got to let the property go. It's not worth it. And then the police departments and the county sheriffs uh, will use this money. Uh, they'll sell these assets and they'll use the money to, you know, buy nice things for, uh, for their police offices and buy just television. The, just, just the other day, in fact, we got in the mail a flyer from the local sheriff say, and, and saying, you know, I'm a great guy, I'm the local sheriff. And at the bottom it said paid for by civil assets taken from, you know, alleged drug dealers. Well, where did that money exactly come from? Are the accounting procedures, the ordinary accounting procedures in place? Even if they are, the, the political process that protects us against tax increases certainly aren't in place. So it's, it's an invitation for bad government all around. All right. So in, in terms of that as a taking... The answer seems obvious, but what stands in the way of eliminating civil asset forfeiture entirely? Oh, it's the it's by far and away it's the police unions. It's the basically the industry that has grown up around asset forfeiture that sees its purpose as self funding further takings. I mean, that's that's it's a sort of a, a circular entity that that exists in order to take money from drug dealers because they're bad and fund further seizures from drug dealers because they're bad. And it just goes around and around in a circle in this pointless, endless, unwinnable, unconstitutional, immoral war on drugs. The way these uh, seizures are undertaken, uh, it, it strongly incentivizes, it would seem, for police to target people unlikely to fight back. Oh, certainly, because they can't afford lawyers because their money's been taken through asset forfeiture. Well, and again, oftentimes it's their property, but it's being used by somebody else allegedly in the commission of a crime. And you you have no knowledge of what happened in that situation. And so you're really not able to prove that that the property wasn't used. To and and like Christina said, the, the, the fact that if you go to court, you waive your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination means that even if you didn't commit that crime and you go in and you try to get your property back, you could be implicated in another crime, and you've also waived your rights. And let's face it, in today's pervasive regulatory state, we, as, as a Cato book famously puts it, you commit three felonies a day, whether you know it or not. We talked about a variety of issues related to property rights, specifically on the blight issue following on the Kelo decision. What are some uh, easy, if difficult, 
uh, solutions that states and local governments could adopt to to make that protection stronger. Well, in the book, we propose something called the Property Ownership Fairness Act, and this is a state law that states can pass that will protect property rights. It, it um, does a number of things. It addresses the eminent domain loopholes that still exist, like blight. It explains that the government bears the burden of proving that the individual property it's taking is actually blighted and there has to be a health and safety justification for that taking. Um, it also deals with the regulatory takings issue that we were talking about, and, and that really is the more problematic of the two. It's a very simple solution. Uh, the act just says that if the government is going to take away your property rights and it decreases your property value, they have to pay you for that decrease in property value if the taking isn't advancing public health and safety. So in other words, the government is using its legitimate police powers, you know, say to stop you from polluting or using your property rights to harm your neighbor. Uh, when the police come in and take away a gun from a, a robber, then there's no taking there. But if the government's going to tell you that you can't rent out your property as a vacation rental or that you have to use your property in some way that you don't wish to use it, for example, you have to designate part of your property as a wildlife habitat uh, and not build on it, uh, then that is a public benefit. Uh, and instead of having the property owner bear the costs of that regulation, the community as a whole ought to bear that burden for that public benefit. And so the government has to pay you for that taking. One other issue I want to talk about just a little bit because it, it seems strange and it goes to the heart of a lot of what property rights, at least to me, represent. And that is the taking of intangible property. Uh, what does that look like? Uh, how do we know what it is and uh, how do we protect it? Well, that's an interesting question because, of course, probably the most infamous case that comes to my mind when you say that is the case from the 70s, I think it was, when the state of California – or uh, this California Supreme Court, rather, upheld the city of Oakland's condemnation of the Oakland the Raiders Oakland, football yeah, right. team. I mentioned this to a friend of mine once and he said, well, they were blighted. Um, but in any case, yes, any property can be taken through eminent domain and that – really isn't that objectionable in principle. I mean, if you can take land for public use and on just compensation, then it makes sense that there might be a case where, for example, an important weapons system has been patented and the army needs, act, needs to use that weapon for a war and so it condemns the, the patent. That makes sense. And that would be done just like an ordinary condemnation case. Uh, it gets a little bit more complicated when you talk about things like we talked about uh, the Raisin case, for instance. Now, the big precedent in the Raisin case was a case called Monsanto. And in the Monsanto case, what happened was that this, the, the federal government said that in exchange for a permit to sell its pesticides, Monsanto had to give up the formula for some of its chemical products to its own competitors. And Monsanto said that was a taking. And the Supreme Court said no because you are paying this in exchange for permission to sell your pesticides. So that's why the federal government tried to argue that the Raisin case was just like that. They said, well, it's just a license. It's a permit, right? And that does get more complicated. Those kinds of cases are what we call uh, exactions cases, unconstitutional exactions cases um, or unconstitutional conditions cases. And, and in the, like the case of the Raiders seizing that franchise, that's a network of – obligations and rights right. and potential profit streams. And it, but it doesn't. And it didn't to, work anyway because yeah. it was to try and keep them from leaving Oakland and they did and then they came back. So yeah, no, that, it would be very complicated. There's, um, of course, another very famous case is the, um, the, the steel seizure case in the Truman administration when during the Korean War, uh, President Truman simply condemned the, the steel factories for war material. So that does happen. But I think the, the really complicated things are in these conditions cases where the government says in exchange for a permit, you have to give up your rights. That, that gets a lot more complicated. And the, the court has given loose ba boundaries saying you can only require something that protects the public and it has to be a reasonable amount. But of course, what the, what the local officials typically do is push the boundary as much as they can. And again, what's common in all of these cases, whether it be eminent domain, regulatory takings or exactions, is that the current system incentivizes government to go ahead and take the property because it's very difficult for property owners to prove that it shouldn't be taken. And the remedy in all of these situations is so-called just compensation, which, uh, again, is sort of in the eye of the beholder, but typically it's the market value of the property right that's been taken away. And 
You know, that's problematic because that's imperfect. A lot of times people don't want to sell their property rights in the first place. If they wanted to sell them, then they would be on the market. The fact that they're not means that that's really not fair compensation. And so reforms that that disincentivize government from taking property in the first place are really needed because even if you do get justice in the legal system at the end of the day, it's often not the type of justice that the property owner is seeking. The property owner just wants to be able to keep his property rights. All right. The book is Cornerstone of Liberty, Property rights in 21st century America. The authors, Timothy Sandifer and Christina Sandifer. You can, of course, get a copy of the book at the Cato store, and you can uh, listen to this very recording. I know it's odd to be telling you this. You can listen to this very recording using the Cato Institute's new iOS app, Cato Audio, same name as this program. Uh, And uh, you can also now subscribe to the Cato Audio podcast on iTunes and other places that podcasts are available. Five U.S. states either permit aid in dying or are poised to do so shortly. Several others are considering legislation and or court judgments that may find in favor of it in various ways. Ethical questions remain. At recent Cato Policy Forum, Barbara Mancini of Compassion and Choices told her own story about the death of her father. Before February 2013, I was just a regular person. I've been married for 21 years. We now have two daughters in college. I worked as an ER nurse. My parents lived in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. It's a small town about 100 miles north of my home in Philadelphia. I was very involved with my parents. We spoke on the phone every day. And as my father's health worsened, I visited frequently. By the age of 93, my father was terminally ill. He enrolled in home hospice care, and he was having significant pain. As a nurse, I know that pain and other distressing symptoms often worsen as a person nears death. My father asked me to hand him his pain medicine. It was a partly filled, one-ounce vial of liquid morphine. He always opened that childproof cap, and we would measure out the dose. I did the same routine with him that day, but before I could measure out the dose, he quickly took what was left in that vial. I know he was having severe pain. The previous night was the worst he'd ever had. When my mother tried to remove a loose button-down shirt, he cried out that it felt like she was breaking his bones. Whether his intention was to do anything other than relieve his pain, he didn't say. A home hospice nurse arrived about two hours later, and I told her dad took the morphine. He was drowsy, but he was not unconscious. He was breathing normally. He was able to follow commands, and he was able to respond to questions. The hospice nurse and her supervisor insisted that my father be taken to the hospital to be treated for an overdose. Now, My father had written advance directives that clearly stated he wanted no life-prolonging treatment. I was his legal health care proxy. He had a standing do-not-resuscitate order, and he was adamant that he never wanted to go to a hospital, and that was documented in his hospice record. I tried in vain to make sure my father's wishes were respected. But the hospice called 911. Police and then paramedics arrived. And by police order, my father was removed from his bed and taken to the hospital for treatment. Ironically, but sadly, when the paramedics asked my father if he was having any pain, for the very first time, his answer was no. I was arrested then and there, right in the house. I was charged with aiding and attempted suicide. This is a second-degree felony in Pennsylvania, 
and conviction carries up to 10 years in prison. The police captain who arrested me told me I no longer had any say in what happened to my father. My mother had gone to the ER to be with my dad, and she was asked by the hospital to give her consent for my father to be treated. The police informed my mother that if my father died, things would go much worse for me. My 84-year-old mother was placed in the agonizing position of having to choose between honoring her promise to my father, whom she loved and was married to for 62 years, or helping me, her daughter. So in order to help me, my mother gave consent for the hospital to treat my father. Two hours after arriving in the ER, more drowsy but still breathing normally, my father was given a medicine to reverse the effects of the morphine. He was livid that he'd been brought to the hospital and he knew I was in trouble. He shouted and pleaded, don't hurt Barbara. Don't let them hurt Barbara. My father suffered tremendously, not only from the unwanted treatment he received in the hospital, but from the anguish of knowing that I was being accused of helping him end his life. He died four days later from pneumonia not from a morphine overdose. The Pennsylvania Attorney General then began a year-long prosecution of me. I was placed on unpaid leave from my job. The prosecutor had the court put a gag order on me, so I couldn't talk publicly about my case, nor could I refute any of the misinformation that was out there. And I incurred over $100,000 in legal fees. Now my case received widespread media coverage. It became national and global news. And the reaction was shock and outrage. There were multiple opinion pieces and editorials written about my case, and not one supported the decision to prosecute, which is very rare in a criminal case. Exactly one year after my father's death, a judge in a scathing 46-page ruling ruled that the case had no merit and the charge was dismissed. Without any apology from either the hospice or the prosecutor, nor any recognition of the ordeal that they'd put us through, we were left to pick up the pieces of our lives. During the year that I was under prosecution, I spent my time doing my own research. I researched hospice care and pain management at the end of life. I researched the criminal laws, and I researched the Oregon Death with Dignity Act. 18 years ago, Oregon became the first state in the country to legalize medical aid in dying which allows a terminally ill person who meets the eligibility requirements to obtain a prescription to bring about a peaceful death. Opponents forcefully argued that allowing this to happen would imperil good end-of-life care by providing an easier alternative. But the opposite happened. Within a year of the passage of this law, end-of-life care in Oregon improved in dramatic and measurable ways. Oregon's at the top of all states for appropriate utilization of hospice care, for the use of medical morphine to treat pain, for the honoring of advanced directives, and more people in Oregon die in their own homes than in any other state in the country. The law has worked so well that it prompted bioethicist Arthur Kaplan to say this. The Oregon law has benefited many more people than have actually used it. 
in the 18 years that the Oregon law has been in effect, a full third of the people who obtain a prescription don't even use it. But they are comforted by having that option available should they feel they need it. The safeguards written into the law work. Medical aid in dying allows terminally ill adults the option of having a prescription to alleviate their suffering if it becomes unbearable. And it allows them to have control over their own dying process. There are specific detailed procedural precautions built into the law. But very briefly, to be eligible, a person must be terminally ill, as determined by two independent physicians. They must be mentally competent or capable of making their own decisions, be able to self-administer the prescription, and be at least 18 years old. Support for medical aid in dying continues to grow. Nationwide, 69% of people approve of it. And a clear majority of physicians now support medical aid in dying, 54%. It's legal now in five states, Washington, Oregon, California, Montana, and Vermont. And in 2015, 23 states plus the District of Columbia introduced aid in dying legislation. Unfortunately, misunderstandings about the law and misinformation from opponents have prevented the law from passing in these other states. I have three takeaways from what I'm saying today. First is that we need to improve end-of-life care and quality hospice care is vital to that end. Second point is an ordeal like this could certainly happen again. And thirdly, medical aid in dying and the benefits that this option brings should be a choice available in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Stanford University did a study last year in the San Francisco area, and they looked at diverse, cultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual groups. And they asked these groups, what kind of care do you want at the end of life? And even in spite of this diversity, there was a common response to that. People want to live as long as they have a good quality of life. But when it is their time, they want to be consulted so that they die in a way that they are respected. So that brings us back to this. Who gets to decide how you will die? You think about it. With the exception of how we die, most people have the ability to control the major decisions that affect our lives. This is an intensely personal issue, and it closely aligns with a lot of the principles of libertarianism, such as the principle of personal liberty that says individuals should be free to make choices for themselves and to accept responsibility for the consequences of the choices they make, and the principle of self-ownership. Individuals own their own bodies and they have rights over them that other individuals, groups, and governments may not violate. We live in a pluralistic democracy, and people's options at the end of life should not be limited because of theological doctrine or other people's personal ideologies. The means to alleviate suffering, whether it's through high-quality hospice care medical aid in dying, or both, should not be limited. My father had a terrible death. And my family and I continue to be haunted by this horrible ordeal that was his end of life. 
I don't know if my father would have chosen medical aid in dying if that option had been available to him. But I do know that he would have wanted the choice and he would have wanted whatever he had chosen to be honored and respected. During his first presidential run, Barack Obama repeatedly promised to roll back the imperial presidency that had grown inexorably over the past half century. Then he was elected. Since 2009, Obama has claimed unprecedented power for himself while advancing a novel argument about his duty as president to ignore the separation of powers and act unilaterally to overcome congressional gridlock. David Bernstein is author of Lawless, the Obama administration's unprecedented assault on the Constitution and the rule of law. He spoke at the Cato Institute in January. The trend of an ever-expanding executive is not new and goes back at least to the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. As presidential power has grown over the last century or so, so has, not surprisingly, the abuse of presidential power. And even as the political divide continues to widen, uh, the partisan political divide, one thing unites Republican and Democratic presidents. They each of any party try to aggressively expand their own prerogatives at the expense of not only the other branches, but of the Constitution and the rule of law itself. The big reaction to this by Congress came in the 1970s after the disasters of Vietnam and of the corruption of Watergate. And Congress enacted a series of measures to try to restrain the executive and bring more power back to itself and to curb the executive and to restore, to some degree, the rule of law. These reforms, unfortunately, have been largely ineffective. Nevertheless, until recently, it seemed that presidents felt constrained, uh, in most cases, to try to obey the law, but at least to pretend that they were doing so. Unfortunately, we seem to have reached a tipping point with the Obama administration. This administration has been aggressive about asserting presidential power, doing so in lawless ways and in an unusually wide range of areas. Moreover, and this is really maybe the more, most unprecedented thing to coin a, to use a word from the title of my book that the Obama administration has accomplished, uh, that the president himself and his advisors seem to see this not as something to be ashamed of. We don't surreptitiously go around Congress. We don't surreptitiously violate the rule of law. But this is a desirable way of governing, something to brag about. We can't wait, says the president. We can't wait for Congress. So I'm just going to take my pen out and sign things. Obama behaves as if there is some inherent virtue in the president ignoring the Constitution's separation of powers and the laws that are on the statute books in favor of presidential decree and whim, as if promoting progressive political ends at the expense of the rule of law is a proper way to govern, not simply as a matter of last resort in an emergency, but as a matter of principle. When pressed for an explanation, his supporters claim that the fact that the Republicans in Congress are alleged to refuse to cooperate with the president's agenda and that Congress is supposedly dysfunctional somehow gives the president extra powers beyond those provided by the Constitution. But in fact, the Constitution doesn't contain implicitly or explicitly any Congress is a bunch of jerks so the president gets more power clause. It just isn't there. I've looked, I've looked several times. Um, let me, so let me run down some of the examples that law, like I'm not going to summarize the whole book for you, but let me run down some of the examples that Lawless gives of the abusive exercise of presidential authority. Going to war in Libya, in blatant violation of the president's own promise, own statements before uh, he was elected about when the president could go to war without congressional approval, and even more uh, egregiously, in blatant violation of the War Powers Act appointing so-called czars to high-level government positions to evade uh, constitutionally mandated confirmation hearings and also congressional oversight, modifying, delaying, uh, and ignoring various provisions of the law he himself signed, the Affordable Care Act, in violation of the law itself, attacking and slandering private individuals for engaging in constitutionally protected speech, issuing draconian regulations uh, for sexual assault on campus, 
not through formal regulation, but through an informal dear colleague letter that's not subject to any normal legal proceedings or review. Ignoring 100 years of advice from the Office of Legal Counsel and arguing that the DC delegate could be granted voting rights in Congress, running General Motors from the White House without any hint of statutory authorization to do so, and then also rewriting the bankruptcy laws to favor unsecured creditors, notably the auto workers union, over the secure creditors who are supposed to get preference under the law. Imposing common core standards on the states via administrative feedback, and, and much more. That's just a, uh, something of a laundry list, and there's even more in the book. Obama and his allies, I mean, I'm sure they're good-hearted people. Uh, uh, they want to accomplish good ends, and they probably oppose the dilemma this way, for example, in the context of the illegal measures that the president has taken to prop up Obamacare. If we could find a way to ensure that millions of Americans are not deprived of health insurance, shouldn't we do so? How can we, you know, the Republicans won't cooperate with us. They just want to repeal Obamacare. We've passed this great law that's giving millions of people insurance. Shouldn't we find, shouldn't we stretch the law as far as possible to, the, uh, to do what we can to make sure people have health insurance? The problem is that this kind of ends justifies the means reasoning is understandable to the extent it reflects a sincere desire to help needy Americans, but it neglects the long-term damage of undermining legal restraints on the president in favor of, protect, of protecting a current political agenda, however worthy that agenda seems to be at the time. The idea of we had no choice but to seize power to help the people is exactly the rhetoric and reasoning used by every tin pot dictator in the world to justify tyranny. Everyone has their agenda. Right now, this is a great thing to do, but we have to look at the long term. How is this undermining things? Ultimately, the Obama administration's cavalier attitude toward the rule of law can only be justified if one thinks that law is just politics by another name anyway. Law has no independent value, and therefore, just get what you can now and don't worry about it. As important as the economic impacts of immigration may be, immigration's impact on American institutions is also important to study. Ben Powell is a professor of economics at Texas Tech University. He discussed some of the various impacts of immigration at the Cato Institute in January. For about a decade now, I've been giving talks on immigration around the country. And what's striking to me is that the debate among social scientists about the impacts of immigration is just vastly different than what it is throughout uh, Capitol Hill or public radio across the country. The gains that economists predict from moving to a world of open borders are just jaw-droppingly staggering. So we're talking 50 to 150% of world GDP, doubling of GDP level, and it's staying doubled and continuing to grow from that level every year. This is just massive. If the economists are off by a lot, it's still massive. When we think about other problems associated with immigration that people worry about, be it crime, the educational system, whatever, which of these problems can't be at least partially addressed or solved with double world GDP? I don't think the population in general appreciates how big these gains could be. And it's because what Julian Simon, of course, referred to as the ultimate resource, human ingenuity, a lot of it's trapped in places with lousy institutions, not much respect for economic freedom, bad rule of law, bad property rights, so it's not made use of effectively. If you take them out of the poor environment, all of a sudden their human capital becomes more valuable. It's what we call the place premium in immigration economics. Take a Haitian out of Haiti, drop them in the United States, overnight average earnings go up 1,000%. Ditto for Nigeria. For a Mexican, it's about 150%. This is just putting that human capital that's really going to, you know, not being made very good use of in poorer parts of the world, and all of a sudden mobilizing it. That's where these big gains come from, and I think this is just vastly underappreciated by most Americans. Now, when it comes to their objections, usually, I mean, you, you get kind of the, the Lou Dobbs trio of they're going to impoverish our economy, they're going to steal our jobs, that's also the South Park one, and they're going to depress our wages. So first, for the U.S. economy, the economists who are critical of immigration agree that existing immigration, both illegal and uh, legal combined, are a net benefit to native-born Americans. So not just to the economy that includes the gains to those immigrants, which are big, but to the native-born as well. It, but it's small, modest as a percent of GDP. Take George Borjas, who's probably the most prominent economist critical of greater immigration. 
and use his standard method for estimating and update it for current levels of immigration. It's around $40 billion per year to the, US to the native born citizens in the US economy that immigrants earn, add to it. So as a you know, $15 trillion or so economy, 40 billion is kind of small, but note, this is the debate among economists. The guy who's critical says the net economic gains are positive, but then we'll say, but they're relatively modest, so if we just got rid of it because I care about other things, well, we wouldn't lose that much. This is much different than Lou Dobbs telling everybody, they're gonna make us a third world country. No, this isn't the debate among responsible social scientists. So what about jobs? They steal our jobs. This is the most popular one, probably. It's a classic case, I think, of what Bastiat called the seen and the unseen. When an immigrant comes in and displaces a native-born worker, there's a, you can stick a camera on the native-born worker. This guy can say, I used to do landscaping. Now look, it's all people from another country who are doing landscaping here. You can see the guy who is displaced. But immigration both creates and destroys jobs. So it took that person's job, but immigrants also demand goods and services, which creates needs for other jobs. And it frees American labor to do what's in its comparative advantage. Note I just used the economic catchphrase, comparative advantage. And that's because the case for free trade and labor isn't fundamentally different than the ones for, for trade in goods and services. Uh, it's still based on comparative advantage and freeing the labor up to do what it is best suited to do, given the relative scarcity of other types of labor. The main difference with immigrants is unlike goods and services, they can commit other acts while they're here, whether it be crime, terrorism, or voting. Uh, those are the differences, <laughs> yeah, lump those together. Those are the differences compared to goods and services, but the core economics are basically the same to it. Uh, so think if they did steal our jobs on net. It's not something particular about an immigrant that's making the job stolen. It would just be increasing the labor force and it's like a notion of a fixed pie of jobs. Well, what's happened to the civilian labor force since the 1950s? Massive entry of baby boomers, women, and post-1965 immigrants into the workforce. We've seen close to a tripling of the number of workers in the economy since 1950. We should be seeing massive long-term structural unemployment if there's some fixed pool of jobs. Of course, we don't see this. What we see, if, you, if I brought a PowerPoint and you track these things, you could look at total civilian employment and size of the labor force. Little gap between them of unemployment, as always, and during recessions, it gets bigger. But the two of them basically triple in size over this time period. There's just no net effect on jobs overall. Short-term displacements, longer-term reemployment. The Obama administration's internal and public fights over surveillance, targeted killings overseas, and other assertions of executive power will, at best, leave a mixed legacy for the next occupant of the White House. Charlie Savage is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. His new book is Power Wars, Inside Obama's Post-9-11 Presidency. He spoke at the Cato Institute in January. Yes, I've been in Washington covering national security issues and legal policy issues since 2003. Uh, I sort of rode the, the wave in on uh, Abu Ghraib and the uh, attempt by Senator McCain to impose a ban on torture and the signing statements by Bush that came out of that, as well as uh, the revelations about warrantless wiretapping by my future colleagues at the New York Times. I was then at the Boston Globe. Uh, and this was, and eventually became a specialist in this layer of what the government has been doing, the sort of continuing dilemmas and legal fights over executive power, national security, individual rights after 9-11. And you may remember in January of 2009 when President Obama was inaugurated, there was this moment in which it looked like the war on terror was suddenly abruptly over. He had, of course, run on a platform of change from George Bush's global war on terrorism. He'd been a big critic on the campaign trail of how the government had conducted itself in the years after 9-11. Uh, in his inaugural address, he talked about the, uh, you know, getting away from the sense that there had to be a trade-off between uh, constitutional ideals and security. And among the first things he did was issue a series of executive orders promising less secrecy, closing CIA black site prisons, banning torture, ordering Guantanamo closed. And it really looked like it was over, and this thing that I had become a specialist in and a couple of colleagues of mine, uh, like Scott Shane, Mark Mazzetti, and so forth at the Times, did for a living uh, was no longer going to be available. And I remember joking to Scott, I think it was, uh, that we were going to have to find new jobs. Maybe there was an opening in the sports department and we could you know, keep paying the rent somehow. 
but very quickly, it became apparent uh, to me that it was not over, that there was going to be much greater continuity in the counterterrorism policies of the new administration uh, with the old one than the expectations created by then-Senator Obama's campaign rhetoric. Some of his uh, incoming cabinet members in sort of little notice remarks during their confirmation testimony had affirmed that, in fact, they thought it was lawful for the government to hold terrorism suspects without trial under the laws of war, that they were going to continue the practice of rendition, transferring people to other countries from one intelligence agency to the next, uh, based only on diplomatic assurances that there would not be mistreatment, was, which was exactly Bush's policy, at least on paper as well. Uh, they shut down temporarily military commissions, but they'd done so in a way that looked like they were keeping the door open to resuming them, which is, of course, exactly what happened. They were stirring the state secrets privilege in court uh, to continue blocking lawsuits about torture and surveillance that they had inherited from the Bush administration. Uh, and all that was sort of apparent by two or three weeks into the new administration. How is it that Obama has had so little change uh, from the policies that he inherited from the second term Bush administration. Where did this disconnect come from? Is that, why do people keep saying he's acting like Bush? How did we get here? What happened? And one of the takeaways uh, that I uh, put forward in this book as an argument is that what it means to act like Bush is, can mean more than one thing. Uh, and it's easier to see now than it was at the time during the Bush years when you know, organizations like Cato were having conferences and, and, you know, in which people had panel discussions criticizing Bush or there were rallies and so forth, was that there were two different strands of criticism that were entangled together but are in fact distinct. There was a rule of law critique and there was a civil liberties critique. So the civil liberties critique says it's inherently wrong to have a warrantless wiretapping program or to torture, or to have a system of military commissions, because the state should not have that power vis-a-vis -vis the individual. This is un-American. The rule of law critique is agnostic about whether, with the exception of torture, whether these things are a good idea or a bad idea. Torture is always illegal. But and maybe these are a good idea, given the challenges of 21st century transnational terrorism. But it's focused on the process. The president doesn't get to break the law. And so if a federal statute says you must get a warrant to wiretap on domestic soil, even in wartime, the president doesn't get to say in secret, I'm the commander in chief, I can ignore that and disregard it. The president has to go to Congress and persuade lawmakers to remake the law so that statutes authorize rather than forbid what it is he or she wants to do. And so the, one of the big differences between the rule of law critique and the civil liberties critique is that the rule of law critique is fixable. If something is, violates civil liberties, the only way to fix it is to stop doing that thing. If something violates the rule of law, Congress can pass a bill to change the law so that it no longer violates the rule of law. And in fact, in the second term of the Bush administration, Congress passes the Military Commissions Act, passes with Senator Obama's vote the FISA Amendments Act, and we know now, which we didn't know at the time, the Intelligence Court was issuing secret rulings that took these unilateral programs that were collecting everyone's phone records and email records and rooted them in a you know, somewhat tenacious claim that the Patriot Act authorized them imposed court oversight. And so by the time Obama becomes president, if you think the problem with, that act, with Bush, that acting like Bush means violating the rule of law in the national security sphere, uh, the problem is largely fixed. If you think the problem is that acting like Bush is violating civil liberties, the problem is not fixed, because it, who cares if Congress has blessed it? The government just needs to stop doing this thing. So the part two of that analysis is Barack Obama is a lawyer, obviously. Joe Biden is a lawyer. Bush and Cheney are not lawyers. They're CEOs by background. They had very few lawyers that, they, that surrounded them. They were perhaps the least lawyerly administration ever. The few lawyers they let into the room had very, these sweeping idiosyncratic theories of executive power. Oh, we've gone from that extreme to the opposite extreme. This is probably the most lawyerly administration ever. Not only are Barack Obama and, and Joe Biden law school graduates, they are clearly the most comfortable when they're talking to fellow law school graduates who analyze problems the same way, who speak the same lingo. So they fill the upper ranks of their administration with lawyers, fellow lawyers, and policy-making roles. There's a million examples I can give. The easiest one is, say, Secretary of State. 
Bush's two secretaries of state, Condi Rice and Colin Powell, are not lawyers. Obama's Hillary Clinton and John Kerry are, but that replicates itself throughout the upper ranks of the national security political apparatus. And so if their lawyerly thinking, their lawyerly approach to problems uh, is brought to bear on what do they think the problem is with Bush. Not surprisingly, they are uh, overwhelmingly, and if you go back and look at transcripts of things from the Bush years, the, they were the ones articulating the rule of law critique, not the civil liberties critique. The Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty, named in honor of perhaps the greatest champion of liberty in the 20th century, is presented every two years to an individual who has made a significant contribution to advance human freedom. This year, Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton will be delivering the keynote address at the award dinner on May 25th this year in New York City. For more information on the dinner and to register, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.